Hello, this is Adam Gordon-Bell. Join me as I learn about building software. This is Code Recursive. As a species, we suck at estimating. First of all, let's call it what it really is. It's fortune telling. Estimating is fortune telling. You are trying to predict the future. Now, there's some occasions where you can predict the future pretty well. If it's a very short time scale, if there's not a lot of volatility, not a lot of unknowns, yeah, you can do okay at it. But the farther the time horizon goes, the more volatility, the more changes are in the environment, the more chaotic it is, it drops off pretty quick. And you know, if you're trying to come up with a, some sort of detailed project plan that goes six months, a year into the future, it's fantasy. That's just, it's a fantasy. There's no way around it. And so get better at that? No, I don't think that's really the way to go. I think it's a better approach to figure out how can we create software at a reasonable cost and in a reasonable amount of time without having to waste time making up estimates that no one really has any faith in in the first place. That was Andy Hunt. He is the co-author of The Pragmatic Programmer and he also wrote this book called Pragmatic Thinking and Learning, which is kind of a survey of different ways you can get better at thinking and communicating and coming up with ideas. And uh, we're going to talk about it today. I've been trying to avoid in this podcast using the word agile for personal reasons, I guess, my aversion to process. But uh, Andy's one of the authors of the Agile Manifesto. So it's pretty interesting, actually, to hear his thoughts on what the vision was for Agile and, and where we are today. But that's only a small aspect of what we talk about. We also talk about brainstorming, note-taking, becoming a better developer, all kinds of interesting stuff, even spaceships. If you like this podcast, then subscribe to it. You can help me out by telling people who you think might enjoy it about it. Today, my guest is Andy Hunt. Welcome to Co-Recursive, Andy. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great that you're here. You have quite a long biography. Most notable to me is you co-authored The Pragmatic Programmer, which has got to be one of the more influential programming books in the past. Yeah, we were very surprised by how that's turned out over the years. When Dave Thomas and I first sat down to write that book in about 1998 or so, we were just going to write a little white paper for our consulting clients at the time. So that's that was why we put in, it's like, okay, try to think of things this way. Stop doing the stupid stuff, you know, the, the, this kind of advice. And um, we were really shocked when the book first came out. It was on the Amazon top 10 bestseller list and not of computer books. I mean, the Amazon top 10 bestseller list. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was right next to, um, I think it was like a Harry Potter and a John Grisham kind of a, I mean, it didn't stay there long, don't get me wrong, but, uh, you know, that it was there at all was remarkable. And, and yeah, it still shows up on, you know, things like uh, IEEE or ACM's, you know, top 10 most influential books, you know, all these, these sorts of top five, top 10 lists, which is really, you know, it, it's kind of amazing. And um, it'll go some years before I, you know, I don't read it or reread it that often. It's just, you know, kind of in there, stuck in the neurons. But every so often I'll go back and read it and be like, wow, this is still a thing. You know, it's 20 years later now. And, you know, these are still problems. These are still issues. These are still things people aren't doing as well as they could. 
common sense is is uncommon maybe is that is yeah is <laughs> common sense ain't uh <laughs> so besides that you uh i have a little bio here you were one of the co-authors of the agile manifesto and you're writing a science fiction book he sounds like a busy guy yeah i've actually got two science fiction novels out and i'm supposed to be working on the third but i'm actually puttering on some other projects at the moment but uh the first two of the trilogy are out there conglomora and conglomora found sounds very cool so today i wanted to talk to you a bit about this book you wrote that i really like called pragmatic thinking and learning so as a software developer why should I learn more about, about thinking and learning? Well, that's kind of what the game's all about. You know, a lot of folks think, oh, I'm a coder, I'm a programmer, you know, I'm just here to write code, but that's not really the job. We're really problem solvers. And now most often we write code to solve problems, but not always. And so as a problem solver, kind of the two key things that that boils down to is you have to be skilled at communications and you have to be skilled at learning. Because we're learning from everything all the time. And not just, you know, the new tech stack or, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday. It's about 3 p.m. my time. So there's been 37 new JavaScript frameworks that just came out today, (laughs) right? And not even counting the barrage of new tech, but just you're learning from your fellow team members. How do they work? How do you interact with them? How do you work and interact with the users? How do you interact with the evolving system under test as it's growing and building? You know, these are all areas that you have to sort of learn from and learn to work with as they're moving and changing. So, you know, that's really what the whole game is about. And of course, there's the new tech that comes along constantly. Somebody pointed out a while back that, you know, you think the pace of change is really frantic right now. All these new technologies, new languages, new frameworks, new security threats, you know, all this stuff happening. But you have to consider on the long curve of history, today is the slowest the pace of change will ever be going forwards. It is just going to get faster. So, Yeah, it's hard now and just literally not going to get any easier. So we have to learn all the time. That's a frightening thought that it'll just, so a year from now, the JavaScript framework pace will be 2x. (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking it's just going to go up geometrically, at least. (laughs) So which is a better investment, like learning in a new piece of technology or learning kind of at this meta level about learning? Well, you have to do both, obviously. And if you haven't learned how to learn well, that's kind of, you need to start with that that needs to be your starting point. Yeah, I've always figured that was the advantage of college or university education. Theoretically, they should teach you how to study and how to learn. Now, unfortunately, of course, it doesn't tend to work out that way in in at least modern times. I'm not sure if it ever did. But yeah, you have to learn how to learn. And that's, you know, for me, that's taking a lot of notes, you know, physically writing out longhand, because there's a difference cognitively whether you're writing out notes or typing them or recording them on audio and then listening later, those all sort of, of hit different areas of the brain. And you know, for some people, some are going to work better than others on how you can remember that and go back and retrieve it later. But you know, in general, you need to, whatever you're learning, you really have to work with the information. You know, uh, Write it down, make yourself cheat sheets. Uh, one of the first things I do anytime I'm learning a new language is start with a cheat sheet. 
you know, however basic, okay, this is what assignment looks like in this language. Oh, they don't have assignment in this language. <laughs> okay, well, uh, yeah, I'll make it slightly different note. Um, it's immutable forever. Okay, well, that's different. Great. But, but you know, whatever it is, you start making the notes, um, you know, trying to, you know, get onto uh, news groups or meetups, talk about it with other people. But really, it comes down to practice, to actually trying to do it. I swear, this happens to me every time. I'll read some book on a new language and I'm reading through it. And it's like, okay, I, I understand what they're, or this is like this other language. Okay. This is cool. This is great. And then you sit down and try to write, you know, even hello world, you know, so you just try to write something <laughs> very simple. It's like, now wait, what was that again? <laughs> How do I do that thing? And you're flipping back through the book, trying to find the example. And, you know, you type the example in exactly as they have it in the book. And of course it doesn't work. And it throws some error that you have no idea. It could be talking in Sanskrit or, or, you know, some, what are they on about? And then, you know, you get experience with that language and realize that you put the, the doc string in the wrong place. If it was uh, enclosure, or you left off a semicolon, if it was a, you know, a, a C derivative language or whatever it might be. And so you get kind of used to that, but you have to be in there working it to get that kind of experience and to get that sort of deliberate learning. And that's really the path to mastery, how to become an expert in anything, 10,000 hours or not, is this concept of deliberate practice. So not just sort of doing the same thing over and over again, but really honing in on these are the parts that aren't easy for me. This is the part I don't understand. This is where I'm weak in this topic. That's what you really dive in and learn more about it, read up, try it, write a couple samples, and now you're no longer weak in it. And you just keep going like that. You know, if you've never, you don't quite get what the buzz is about functional programming, you know, dive into something like Clojure or Elixir or Rust and try and program in that style in several different languages, because of course, none of them are the same. They all have a slightly different take on it, but you'll learn something from each one. And even back in, in the original Pragmatic Programmer book back in the late 90s, we suggested that you should learn a new programming language every year for exactly that reason, because each one will teach you something different about problem solving. So you might play with and learn Elixir, say, and you might never use that in your day job or even as a hobby, but just the act of learning it and seeing how they solve some of the common problems and some of the features they offer, now you will design your programs in other languages a little differently, you know, armed with that knowledge. So even if it's something that you're not going to use directly, it still has incredible value for you to learn. So it seems like there's a difference between learning and skills. Like you were talking about uh, reading a book and you kind of, you think you have the knowledge, but how do you develop the actual skills? Practice. You know, it's that old joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall, right? <laughs> you know, practice, man, practice. That's really what it comes down to. There's no shortcut. The best way to do it is to do it. And unfortunately, there's no shortcut for that. You mentioned uh, taking notes. So how do you take notes? I've done a variety of things over the years. I've taken like paper notes in like a small Moleskine style notebook. I've typed on the computer. I've used programs uh, such as uh, Evernote or, or you know things of that nature. And I keep coming back to my personal and maybe idiosyncratic favorite is an editor-based wiki. So 
I rig my editor, whatever it might be, Vim, TextMate, Sublime over the years. I rig it up so that if you put in a camel case word and you just you know hit enter or alt enter, it takes you to that, that file and that directory. Uh-huh. And so you've got something like an online wiki, like, like Wikipedia or a media wiki or whatnot, just in plain text, right there local on your machine. You know, it's blindingly fast. You can bop in between, you know, different pages as fast as it takes to load an editor buffer on your machine, which is, you know, pretty instantaneous, works offline. The actual text files are then, I usually have them backed up over a version control system. Uh, When I first started doing this, no joke, it was RCS (laughs) and then CVS. And then I swear Subversion was in there somewhere. And it's Git today. But, you know, it's it's kind of treating it like source code. You know, here's plain text files. It's in version control. But I can link between them for different ideas. And then depending on what's um, sort of hot in my brain space at the moment, I'll have a, you know, a home or a to-do sort of base page with the most important topics up at the top. And then very quickly, the five or six things I'm working on, because it's always at least five or six things, right? You know, you can just dive in and, you know, start taking notes, coming up with ideas, putting up sketches of articles or blog posts or, or whatever you're, uh, you know, whatever you're working on. So that's kind of what what I do for that sort of thing. But, you know, really, whatever works. And let me just, I want to add one footnote to that. So you've got, you have sort of like your main system for taking notes and working with data like that. But Sometimes you're not ready for that stage yet, especially when you're like reading a book on an unfamiliar topic. I may not be kind of ready to kind of really understand all the different concepts and how they fit together or what parts I'm even interested in or what parts I'm not. And for something like that, I'll start off with a mind map instead. So I'll get a big old piece of paper, at least a a pen or a pencil, maybe some colored pencils if I'm feeling particularly fancy, but, you know, probably not at first and just start, you know, doodling on the mind map, start drawing little, you know, circles of, okay, this is an interesting topic. And, and this is, well, okay, this is new and different. I hadn't considered that before. Hey, look, this connects to this other thing. And so you kind of just do a bit of a dump on the mind map, which of course gets very messy because you're scribbling on it and you're drawing lines and you're crossing out lines and, oh, I thought that was connected. It's not. And, but I find it as a really good sort of first step. And then you can take that, maybe now you've got better understanding, you finished the book, you've tried some stuff, whatever, and then sort of transfer that over into notes on the computer or a wiki on the computer or something else, uh, you know, that's it's a little bit firmer. But, you know, I like to start off with the looser tools for the looser thoughts and then kind of you work your way up. And also, as it says in the uh, Pragmatic Thinking and Learning book, because of the way our brain works a lot of really good ideas will come to you when you're not near the computer, especially when you're not near the computer. Mm -hmm. So pro tip, right? If you're stuck on a problem, the best thing you can do for creativity is step away from the keyboard. Just walk away. And people will say, oh, I've always stuck on this bug forever or this design problem or whatnot. And I, you know, left to go home, walk down the hall and halfway down the hallway, guess what happened? Bang, it popped right into my head. Sure. Happens all the time. That's how we're wired. So one of the things that I, I always recommend to people is to carry something with you you can jot notes down on, whether it's a tiny notebook or a, a larger notebook or your phone or you know whatever you've got, you're going to be somewhere where it's not convenient and you get this thought, wow, okay, now I know why that's broken or I really should test this or you know, whatever the idea is. You have to jot it down. 
because you know if you think I'll remember this later, odds are you won't. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll forget about it. It's it's like you know middle of the night you wake up and it's like oh I got this great idea and then you wake up in the morning uh yeah see now what was that again? <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you travel around with your little notebook and then you also have big sheets of paper for mind mapping. And then this whole thing ends up in this wiki. How big is this wiki? Have you been building it for years or is it a... I have been building it for years and occasionally I go in and prune it. You know, there's stuff in there about uh, the proper uh, spark plugs and oil change to do on a tractor that I haven't owned for five years. You know, some of that, there's some of that kind of stuff in there that uh, if I think about it, I prune and sometimes I don't. But yeah, it's probably some 5, 10, 20 megabytes by now maybe of text. Well, it sounds cool, but it also sounds like there's some upkeep involved. Like, where's the value that you get from these systems? The biggest value I find is it acts as an exocortex. It's a an additional part of my brain and my memory. So, you know, especially for things you don't do very often, like, you know, changing the oil on the tractor or what was the uh, proper filter you needed for that you know, your HVAC system or, you know, little householdy things like that. Or here's this programming language I haven't used for a couple of years. I had a cheat sheet on that once. Where was that? Oh, bang. It's right here. Oh, that's right. This one, you know, works this way. Here's, here's the things I need to remember that I'm likely to forget that I stumbled on, you know, once before. And now the notes are right there. It's like, okay, that's right. So it becomes you know, a very easy way to organize and get to these sort of uh, refreshers on different topics, on different details of things that you need to know, that sort of thing. And so if I need a cheat sheet, I might just Google it. Is that as good as having one of my own or? It depends. The advantage of having your own is you're going to highlight the things that are most troublesome for you. One of the problems I find with a lot of cheat sheets in any discipline is there's maybe a quarter of it I desperately need and, you know, maybe a quarter to a third of it that's like, well, duh, of course, everyone knows that you're, you're wasting space. Uh, and then maybe a third of what the hell are they talking about? I haven't gotten to that yet. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, whatever. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard to get, you know, a tailored experience from that, whereas whether it's something you've made yourself These are the problems you've run into and fixed. These are the mistakes you're likely to make from your background in some other language or whatever it might be. So, you know, I find it very helpful, you know, just from that aspect that it's it's sort of tailored to my particular experiences and my particular biases of what I'm going to trip up on and what I'm not. And probably just... Like the act of of making the cheat sheet is is a learning process. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and that's that was going back to this idea of um, why it can be helpful to handwrite notes. You know, the act of of writing it, even just of of capturing it, goes through different plumbing in your brain, and it helps you know cement those ideas, helps cement those memories a little bit better. The more you work to put it in, and then try to recall what's in there, that retrieval is really key. That's the absolute secret to memorizing something is in the retrieval or even doing spaced retrieval or that those sorts of games. But it's that trying to come up with it is what really cements it in your memory. So, you know, when cramming, you don't want to sort of reread the material over and over again to try to memorize it. Maybe do that once and then start quizzing yourself, start asking yourself. That's why 
if you're studying a programming language, going to an empty editor buffer and trying to do it from scratch, that's why that's such a valuable exercise, because now you're trying to recall and retrieve that information of, oh, how do I declare, you know, that I want to write uh, 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 some metaprogramming here, or how do I how do I even declare a variable? How do I, you know, get to the file system, whatever the thing is, you have to retrieve that information. And it's that act of retrieval that really cements it in your mind. So the more and more of that you do, the easier it becomes. And now, bang, you've actually learned it. Yeah. I did do flashcards for a little while to help learn things. And it's based on that, right? The idea that... And you can get fancy with that too. If you do the sort of... um, There's various schemes of doing spaced repetition so that, you know, for items that you miss, you put those back in. So you practice on those more frequently. And then the ones that you do get and get cold, you don't put away forever. You just space them out a lot farther, but you still put them in the the cycle so you don't forget about them, you know, just because you got lucky once. (laughs) But there's, I mean, that's a whole, you know, there's programs that do that. And there's a whole field of research on that kind of of spaced repetition of what's the ideal uh, sort of forgetting curve and how do you put material on that curve to really maximize your ability to memorize it. One of the ideas of the Agile Manifesto was kind of to downplay documentation and writing things down. And you were involved in creating it. So how do these two things? Well, it's, they're, different, they're different things. When the Agile Manifesto downplays documentation, what they're really saying is more along the lines of today's thinking in lean of eliminating waste. So it goes back to what's the intent and what's the purpose. If you're, for instance, interviewing users and you're writing down what they're saying to help you learn and understand what they're doing, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly good. If you're filling out a thousand pages of documentation for the sole purpose of having it bound to sit on a shelf somewhere, that's waste. Mm -hmm. And it is an unfortunate thing that many large enterprise organizations have a requirement that you have to have detailed design documents, or you have to have this, or you have to have that. You have to have some you know, massive amount of writing for absolutely no good reason other than someone thought it would be a good idea once. And it's not used. It doesn't provide value. It literally sits on a shelf somewhere. And that's waste. You know, you're, just, you're wasting time. You're wasting money. You're wasting energy on something that's not needed. Now, a lot of folks have misunderstood this. Oh, Agile's about not documenting anything. No, that's not true. I mean, there's plenty of occasions where documentation at different levels is absolutely required. If you're in a regulated industry, for example, you've got to produce some reports for the FDA for a medical device or, you know, the SEC or whatever. Yeah, you have to do that. Absolutely. And there, there is value to that. If only in that if you don't do it, you're going to get fined $100,000. So, <laughs> yes, there is value in doing this. You know, no problem. No problem. But the real argument there in the manifesto is to avoid producing documentation for documentation's sake. Yeah, that makes sense. I watched a talk you gave related to the subject, and you talked about black swans and estimating. Do you think that estimating is something that we should get better at as like a software community? No, I think it's something that we should not do. I think we should avoid it. I'll tell you, we should avoid it because we suck at it. And by we, I don't mean you and me personally. Oh, I suck at it. Don't worry. Well, yeah, (laughs) as a species, I mean, this is the problem. As a species, we suck at estimating. We suck. First of all, let's call it what it really is. It's fortune telling. Yeah. Estimating is fortune telling. You are trying to predict the future. Now, 
there's some occasions where you can predict the future pretty well. If it's a very short time scale, if there's not a lot of volatility, not a lot of unknowns, yeah, you can do pretty, you can do okay at it. But the farther the time horizon goes, the more volatility, the more changes are in the environment, the more chaotic it is, it drops off pretty quick. And, you know, if you're trying to come up with a, some sort of detailed project plan that goes six months, a year into the future, it's fantasy. That's just, it's a fantasy. There's no way around it. And so get better at that? No, I don't think that's really the way to go. I think it's a better approach to figure out how can we create software at a reasonable cost and in a reasonable amount of time without having to waste time making up estimates that no one really has any faith in in the first place. So how do we do that? Well, that is the question, <laughs> isn't it? There's a lot of answers to that. There's the whole no estimates movement, which is big into debating you know, the fine points of that question. But if you go back to sort of agile basics or, or lean basics, the real answer is don't consider the traditional, here's this year-long budget or a year-long time frame or even six-month time frame. It's like, what can we do right now? You know, your budget is the team. You've got this many people. Okay, what value can we get out of them? Well, here's this thing we absolutely need the most desperately. Can we get that done in a couple of days? Let's just do that. Now let's just do this other thing. The real key is to continually and consistently produce small bits of value that just accrete and build up and go over time. So you got to get away from the thinking of a project of having a project life cycle, that it begins, it, you know, it forms and everybody does it and they build it and then they all leave and go away. That's not really what the world is like anymore. It's much more continuous than that. You know, a lot of folks have this sort of mental idea that, well, once the project's done, it's done. I move on and we do something else. Let me ask you, for the, the apps on your phone, how often do they come out with updates? Like, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? In that world, the updates are continuous. And these aren't just little patches. These are new areas of functionality, entirely new markets sometimes, you know, a large pivot if the tech company is unlucky. It's an ongoing process. It's not a project. It's more of, of a mission. It's, it's whatever that company's corporate mission is. And the software is just an ongoing process. So to look at you know, doing annual budgets or annual project plans it doesn't really make sense in that kind of context. You're going to build something, you're going to get feedback on it from the audience, and then you're going to have to make some changes. So if you've just spent a couple months worth of meetings laying out a year-long project plan, and then two weeks after your app is out in the world, you realize, oh, we got to throw all that away. We have to do something slightly different. You know, that's more likely. Yeah, if you can react to feedback, then your plan's out the window, but you're actually doing better, right? Like yeah, and reacting to feedback, that is the definition of agile. And I find, you know, a great many people get really sort of confused as to the difference between Scrum or Lean or Agile. And unfortunately, I think too many people believe that the beginning and end of Agile is this one small set of practices called Scrum. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand that, you know, Scrum is a set of lightweight management practices for a team in a particular context. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm not going to bash that. That's that's a very useful thing for that topic area in this kind of a, of a situation. The thing is, that's maybe 20% of what you need. Yeah. You know, you need all these technical practices underneath. You need continuous integration, continuous delivery. You need, you know, maybe TDD. You need, 
you need to actually work with the users, right? Agile says, well, you've got to, you know, get requirements straight from the users and work with them and talk with them. Have we ever told them how? Do we have any practices that train users on how to work with us? Uh-huh. We should, right? And so some of the, so I've been puttering around with this idea of the grows method at growsmethod.com. And uh, that's one of the things I'm trying to get into there. It's like, okay, well, we have this expectation to work with executives, to work with users. Well, shouldn't we like give them a clue? <laughs> you know, what, <laughs> how that actually is going to work, what we actually want out of that. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, sort of missing pieces to the puzzle there that Scrum's only one part of, XP is one part of, and you know that's great, but we need more than that. Yeah, I totally agree. Here's a quote that I have from you while we're on the topic of software processes. It says, efforts to make software maintainable or extendable or reusable are a waste. What did you mean by that? Right. So the idea there is, and I'm glad you asked that because that's exactly in the same vein of talking about fortune telling, right, that we suck at. So I'm writing this piece of software and I've been told I have to make it maintainable. I have to make it extensible you know, all these these sorts of good things that people want us to do. And I'm looking at it and I have no idea because to make it maintainable, I need to know what's going to change in the future, right? To make it extensible, I need to know what new requirements are going to come down that we have no idea about, that we're going to get blindsided by. Because if we knew them, we would just write to handle that. Okay, fair enough. But the point is, we don't know what's going to happen. So we're guessing, we're fortune telling, we're trying to figure out in what wild scenario, what might possibly happen that I should code against or prepare for. And you can make some good common sense things. Well, you know, there's going to be a different codex, so we'll make that a plugin and we can just stick in whatever. Okay, that's vaguely reasonable. So, you know, to a point you can do that. But, you know, really at the end of the day, you're trying to guess what's going to happen in an unknown future. So it's probably a better use of resources, a better use of your energy, rather than trying to fantasize about what's going to have to be extended or maintained, say, well, what if I just throw it out? You know, how can I uh, architect this and design this so that worse comes to worse and this is not doing its job anymore. I just want to rip it the hell out and replace it with something more suitable. Now you've got better coupling, better cohesion, better modularization, you know, whatever, you know, all those sort of classic aspects of software. You've achieved all of that and you don't have to waste time with fortune telling. It says, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be bad. (laughs) And, you know, worst case, I'm just going to have to rip this thing the hell out. So let's make sure it doesn't leave any dangly bits behind, you know, when you rip it out. And that goes back to your first comment about the, the Black Swan book by uh, Taleb. And he points out that, you know, in the history of history, all these sweeping changes that have happened blindsided everyone. No one saw it coming. And kind of for obvious reasons, if, again, if you knew it was coming, you'd be prepared for it. So the things that do come and do cause sweeping changes were blindsided by, you know, no one saw that happening. Um, I've told this story a, a bunch of times now, but it, it cracks me up every time. I was cleaning the back, back reaches of my office a couple of years back. And um, there was this old dusty stack of magazines. You remember magazines? You know, people used to print the internet uh, <laughs> and bind yes. it right? in color. And there were all these uh, tech magazines from uh, late 80s, early 90s, I guess, uh, kind of time frame. And, you know, years and years worth of arguments and ink spilled on who's going to win 
the GUI wars? Is it going to be motif or open look? And people look at me going, the what or the what? Okay, for kids in the audience, so Motif and OpenLook were different um, GUI libraries that ran on top of X-Windows. X-Windows being the underlying graphics library architecture for all the Unix workstations at the time. And the big question was, which one of these two competing standards was going to win out? Would it be OpenLook or Motif? And the answer was the web, <laughs> right? None of the above, right? X-Windows died. It all became HTTP and web clients. And it was a completely different thing than what everyone was arguing about. In a similar vein, and I think roughly that same time period, maybe a little bit later, there was uh, all these arguments about what networking, what middleware technology would take over, CORBA or RMI? I remember CORBA. And the answer was the web. We were asking the wrong question. And that's what happens. So, yeah, in that kind of environment, when you're trying to consider how do I make this software last 20 years, how do I make it maintainable, how do I make it extensible, don't. Make it replaceable. Because that gives you all those advantages you're looking for. You don't have your bits spread all over the system. It's nicely contained. It's got high cohesion, low coupling. Everything's all tied together. If it is easy to replace, then it's well-designed software. And when people try to make something endlessly extensible, like there's a trade-off, I think, between like structure and how much something can extend, right? Like the ultimate extendable software is like some sort of eval function that just runs whatever's in a database row or something, right? So you can update whatever it does at any time. Or it's something that becomes sentient, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which you always have to watch out for. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's always common sense in that kind of thing, but a lot of the times I see folks waste so much time arguing over what's going to happen, A or B, when the answer is none of the above. Yeah. You know, it's going to, you know, so even in that case, right? It's like, well, okay. And then three years later, they decide to go to a NoSQL database and it's a completely different architecture or whatever. Yeah. We, we all end up plugging into the great brain on the squishy port on the side of the thing. And it's, it's, it's a liquid AI with quantum gates <laughs> and, I, you know, whatever. It's not going to be what you think it is. So, you know, I'm very conscious of not wasting time trying to imagine a future that's not actually going to happen. It's very pragmatic of you. I try. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier, you talked about getting away from your computer to um, solve a problem. And in your book, you described the sort of dual core processor of the brain. What did you mean by that? So this is going to be a long one. Sit back, have some coffee. <laughs> the brain is a really amazing piece of squishy lump of hardware. And one of the hardest tasks it has is understanding itself. It's very complex. You know, a lot of simplistic assumptions that we've made over the last 50, 100 years have been overturned in the last four or five you know, as we get better imaging, better understanding, but it's a really amazingly complicated bit of stuff. And one of the things is your brain will actually use sort of different strategies for different kinds of processing. So this notion of it being sort of a, a dual CPU, there's actually several, but for now, let's consider there's sort of two major problem-solving modes or activation modes that your brain uses. And when this was sort of first observed, the fellow, uh, Sperry, if I remember right, got a Nobel Prize for it and came up with the idea of left brain versus right brain. The idea that you had this sort of plotting, you know, one step after the other sort of Van Neumann processor kind of model. And then you had this like 
you know, magical digital signal processor thing that just worked asynchronously in the background, like a background task, and would just grab stuff and synthesize it and put it together and throw it over the fence at you at some random moment when you're walking down the hall or, you know, in the shower or just waking up or, or these sorts of, you know, less than conscious moments. So this entered the popular vocabulary is, you know, right brain thinking and left brain thinking. And of course, the brain being the brain, it's not nearly that simple. The way it actually works is you've got these different regions of the brain that activate in tandem with each other. So it's sort of a question of network activation regions. And they're not exclusively in either hemisphere. They're sort of evenly balanced between the two. But these observed properties sort of still exist. You have this mode of thinking that is more creative, more out of the box, more problem solving. And you have this more focused mode that's sort of linear and stepwise. Mm-hmm. So what are the advantages of these different modes? Do they have advantages? Or? Oh, absolutely. They're, and presumably they have evolutionary advantages. Otherwise, why would we bother having them both? But what happens is we're used to the sort of, you know, I'll use the term left brain sort of synchronous plotting through stuff. And that is how we perform tasks. You know, that's how we get through the day and do one thing after the other. And that's great. But for creativity, for ingenuity, for invention, for these sorts of things, you have to give that one a rest and let the other activation mode kick in, the the so-called right brain or or, uh, I had a better word for that in the book, and it's completely gone out of my head right now as I'm as I'm sitting here. Right mode, I think I called it. So instead of being yeah, you yeah, have it's a- like right mode and left mode instead of right brain because it's not hemispherically divided. So we'll just call them modes for the, the sake of convenience. But the right mode is asynchronous. You know, I can ask a trivia question, and it'll sit there and work on it in the background, if you will, like a background job. And it, you know, one of these random points, it will produce the answer and pop it out to you. Now, this gets kind of fun because you might be in the shower or in the car or something and it pops into your head. Or if it's, you know, under some circumstances, it doesn't come to you in your awake conscious state. It comes to you in a dream. And this is where you get these experiences of having some dream that could be as wild as all get out. But there's some fundamental core to it that is the answer to the problem you've been working on. And one of the famous stories is the, uh, the fellow who invented the sewing machine, the electric sewing machine with the needle that goes down through the material and back up, you know, over and over again. He couldn't figure out how to get the thread to loop and tie knots properly with this arrangement. And so he had a nightmare one night about headhunters, the kinds with spears, <laughs> you know, not, not the scary kind, headhunters chasing him through the jungle. And he's describing the dream to his wife and said, you know, these spears were really weird looking. They had holes up near the tip. And bang, the light flash, because what makes a sewing machine work is the holes are at the tip by the needle, not at the back, like in a hand sewing Ah. needle. So that was the big revelation that he needed to finish his invention to file his patent. And it came to him in this, you know, one would think completely unrelated dream about headhunters running around with spears, but it was that imagery of, you know, where the hole was that was the, the salient point. And that came to him. And, and as I describe in the book, you know, uh, quite a few famous inventors were aware of this phenomenon of trying to tap into these hypnagogic states and access that sort of imagery that your brain is generating. So Edison, Thomas Edison, who had, you know, what, thousand or more patents, he used to take a nap in his study 
holding a cup of ball bearings or marbles, as the story goes, in his hand. And the idea is he would nod off to sleep, drop the marbles, and the clatter would wake him up, and he would write down whatever was you know, sort of in his head at the moment. And I got to think his housekeepers just loved that action. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Edison! You, know, you picture you know, a thousand ball bearings all over the floor again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is reasonable to put uh, you know, a little notepad by the bed or wherever you sleep, because when you wake up with sort of those first thoughts, it's very often this right mode set of activation regions in the brain generating imagery, generating solutions to something you've been pondering that it's trying to express. I haven't experienced this dream version of it, but definitely the shower. I feel like I've had a lot of great breakthroughs there. Yeah. How do you personally take advantage of this? Like, do you load up your brain with facts and then go for a stroll or? Yeah, I I almost literally. And it's funny, I don't really consciously do that so much as I'll just be jamming stuff in for a day or a couple days of something I'm working on. And then I'm just tired of sitting there and I'll go out and do something. And yeah, you know, if you're, as soon as you're away from the keyboard, ideas pop in. I actually had that happen. The novel I'm working on currently, it kind of works that way. It's like, I'll be, you know, writing is always a hard thing, whether it's a tech book or a fiction book, you get to a point and you're just stuck. You know, you're looking at the blank page. It's like a blank page of code. It's like, I don't know what to do next. And you walk away and you got nothing. And, you know, as you say, you're in the shower or you're doing dishes or you're out doing yard work or you're walking the dog or whatever. And then, boom, it's it's not just one, but I'll get like 12. Oh, my God, I can do this. And then that ties. In. Oh, and this is perfect. It ties back to this other thing. And then it's a scramble to try to capture all that before it evaporates again, before you forget it. So some years back, I discovered they actually make waterproof notepads <laughs> that you can put in the shower. And they actually made a specific version for the shower. I don't think, I don't think it's manufactured anymore, but you can go to a, a, like a camping store and they make journals and special pencils for hikers or campers that are designed to get wet and work in a wet environment. And yeah, I've literally written like whole chapters of books you know, standing there in the shower, jotting down furiously a couple notes that just came to me so I don't lose it. That's fantastic. When it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in your book, you talk about uh, meditation even. Can meditation make me a better software developer? It seems to. There's a large body of studies out there that sort of cite the cognitive benefits to meditation. And you read through it, it sort of seems that this is kind of the best way to sort of reboot your brain, maybe defrag your mental hard disk, you know, sort, sort of clean things up. So they've cited studies with uh, school-aged children of improved ability to memorize, improved ability to analyze, uh, improved ability to write, study, you know, all these sort of things you would look at in a population of school children. I'm not aware of any particular study that's been done with software developers, but all of the general studies showing improved cognition, improved mental abilities. Hell yeah, sign me up. You know, I need all the help I can get. <laughs> <laughs> so absolutely. And, you know, it's a nice way to get away from email and Twitter for a little bit. Do you meditate? I have for significant periods of time, for you know, years at a stretch. I'm not just at the moment as we're recording this. I've gotten out of the habit lately, but 
you know, every time I give one of these interviews, it's like, I need to get back to that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put that back on my to-do list because it is helpful. <laughs> There's no pressure here. I'm just curious. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, the cobbler's children have no shoes, right? You know, all the stuff that I uh, talk about and that I preach, I have done for significant amount of time. I don't do it all at once because I wouldn't have time to do anything else. So, you know, it kind of pick and choose depending on your needs. That makes sense. What do you think about working in a high pressure environment? So I feel like a lot of these ideas, uh, like taking a stroll and stuff, imply like sort of a relaxed work world. They don't imply like whatever, the production server's gone down and nobody can figure out what's going on. So interesting point there. That's a, cognitively speaking, that is a terrible environment. So the first thing your brain does, the first thing your body does when it realizes there's pressure the, oh my God, the production server has gone down. The database is gone. You know, there's hackers from some country I can't even pronounce. It's got too many consonants in it. You know, whatever, the, 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 some crisis has happened. Your body is trained from however many million years of evolution to say, okay, there's a crisis. Step one, shut off the brain. We don't need any to waste any blood flow or oxygen going there. So let's shut that down, funnel everything to the legs, uh, empty the stomach, you know, just in case we have to run, you know, right. The full flight or, or fight response, right? So, you know, your legs get all jiggly. You might feel a little nauseous and your brain is shut off. The higher order thinking is shut off because your body's like, holy, hmm, we've got to, you know, there's a tiger coming after us or, <laughs> you know, whatever. Now, of course, in this day and age, that ain't the problem. We actually need it to go the other way and say, okay, make my stomach stop rumbling because I'm going to miss lunch and let's get all the extra glucose and, and O2 into the brain because that's where the action is. Unfortunately, I don't have a switch for that. You know, most people don't, but they've done studies that show that it's actually even worse than that. Just knowing you have a deadline can pressure the mind into failure, which is is really sort of daunting. So, you know, you look at some of these stereotypical high pressure environments and look at their failure rates. It's like, well, okay, we're wired for that. That's sort of how it works. So one of the best things you can do, and this, this kind of goes back to the meditation question, when you're in a panic situation like that, literally the first thing you want to do is take a deep breath. No, you did it wrong, right? Most Westerners, it turns out, myself included, apparently we breathe wrong. When you say take a deep breath, your first inclination is to go <gasps> like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Wrong. That's a shallow upper chest breath. The first thing you need to do is exhale all the crap, stale air. You want to push all the bad air out, then take a very deep breath from the lowest point of your diaphragm, filling up all of the chest out to the sides, out past your arms, up into the top of your chest and up into your throat. You want to go from the fill from the bottom up after you empty it first. So, okay, first of all, we breathe wrong. You know, <laughs> you know, it's all downhill from there. But yeah, you take a deep breath that has the practical advantage of helping to reoxygenate your brain because your body's going, oh crap, we have to run because, you know, the tiger. You take a deep breath and, you know, ba I mean, this sounds really cliche, but you basically make it calm. You know, everyone can be running around you like the hair's on fire and the production server's on fire. But, you know, if you buy into that and go along with them, then your brain's going to be shut off and that's not going to work. So you literally have to take a deep breath, focus on the evidence, look at what's actually happening. You know, don't listen to the person nattering next to you going, oh my God, it's hackers. It's like, well, 
let's look at the log, let's trace the packets, let's look at the stack trace, you know, whatever the stuff is you got to look at, just start looking at the evidence and work your way through it. And I know it's hard, but, you know, you want to try and shut off that sort of emotional response that is our first and, and our default response of going, ah, and screaming and running around. Yeah, I feel like that we could do better with making these less stress situations. Like, I don't know if something goes wrong and I get paged every five minutes just to make sure that I know it's still going wrong. You know, it's like. <laughs> well, and there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, I think. The first is software in general is a very difficult area because it's so completely intangible. You know, it's not a factory floor. They can't, you know, the, the, the bosses, your coworkers can't see you out there with the hammer actively banging on the thing, trying to get it back into shape. It's intangible. And because of that, you know, it makes the trying to manage software operations and development is a very difficult thing anyway. But you couple that with at this point in time, you know, most of the organizational structures in place were not designed to handle software companies. They were designed to handle railroads. They were designed to handle manufacturing. And so you've got these, you know, decades upon decades of, quote, best practices, unquote, he says with disdain, that are not designed for the sort of work that we do. We have accounting structures, governance structures that aren't designed for software and round peg square hole. Totally. So it's 20 years since the Pragmatic Programmer, approximately. What do you think is missing? Or what would you update? Wow, boy, there's a question. As I, and I'm going from memory here. So the last time I read Pragmatic Programmer, it struck me how many things had changed in 20 years and, of course, how many things hadn't changed. So anything where we're talking about philosophy or human nature or how we react to things, dead, solid, perfect, don't need to change a word. People haven't changed. You know, 20 years on the time scale of a species evolution is not even nothing, right? We are exactly the same. So that's all fine. A lot of the technology obviously has changed. We had a lot of examples in C or C++ or Corba or Eiffel, you know, hot experimental languages at the time that now no one's heard of. So I would be tempted to go in and talk more about Elixir or Clojure or Rust. And in 20 years, some of those may be popular and and some won't, and people then will be looking, going, what the hell was closure or, you know, rust or whatever. Because mm -hmm. the technology, it does. It comes and it goes. And we sort of had expected that at the time. So we figured the languages themselves and frameworks and stuff probably wouldn't last. But what we didn't really foresee was the pervasiveness of the internet. So it's a little embarrassing, but, you know, circa 1998 or so, we spoke of the internet with a capital I and how people were starting to use this email thing <laughs> and, you know, it might really take off. And, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, this was obviously at the time, it was very much a different world from the world of today. I remember there was one thing about this fancy idea of unit testing. And I think we actually advocated writing your own unit testing framework since there weren't any out there or weren't enough out there. And now it's like, oh, wow. Like, no, <laughs> no, no, not that. You know, we, I don't think we even envision the idea of having like CI, CD in the cloud and being able to, you know, push and do builds in the cloud kind of environment that just wasn't, you know, wasn't what was done back then. That was the age of CD ROMs and America online carpet bombing people with, uh, you know, with CDs in the mail. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it, it really is a different world. The tech landscape is different, but the, 
errors that we make, the opportunities we don't pursue, that's really all the same. And that's why the book still you know, remains on the classic list is we got so much of that right and it is still useful. You know, it's like going back and reading uh, Fred Brooks's Mythical Man Month. He's talking about building, you know, the IBM 360 mainframe, which is horribly dated. But literally, if you go through and replace that, if you just did a search and replace and replace it with a Samsung phone hardware or an iPhone or, you know, something contemporary, mm. it would read exactly the same. You know, the management struggles are the same. The misunderstandings are the same. The problems we face are exactly the same. You know, just the tech changes. So my very last question is, uh, what made you decide to write science fiction? Well, that's a really good question. Well, okay, yeah. What made me decide to write science fiction? Well, funny enough, and this this comes on the heel of the uh, hypnagogic uh, uh, responses uh, question, the core of the plot, the sort of the scene, the environment came to me in a dream. Ah. It was a very brief dream. It was, it was more sort of like the scenery, like this is what it would look like, the idea of this, where the plot takes place, this sort of all these spaceships decided Earth was dead. They couldn't find another useful planet to set up on, so they just stuck all their ships together out at the edge of space, not going anywhere, and you know called it home. And this sort of vision of what that culture would look like, what you know living there would be like, what threat comes to them and how they have to deal with it. It just came to me in this brief dream. I was like, that's kind of a cool idea. I should write that down so I don't forget it. So I wrote it down and, and literally it was, I mean, a page, maybe half a page. You know, it was, this wasn't any grand treatment. It was just, oh, here's the sort of nifty idea. And I sort of looked at it. It's like, well, let me just kind of extend that into a proper short story. And I did. And then uh, I kind of went from there. And now the, you know, two books are out and the third one will come after the, current novel i haven't read the books i looked on amazon but i saw the the keywords in the review homebrew spaceship and i'm like i don't know what that is but it sounds cool <laughs> it, it's fun i mean the fun thing about science fiction is it's easy enough to decide okay i've got this great new technology i've got warp drive i've got transporters i've got gene editing i've got ai you know whatever i got blockchain gotta get blockchain in there somewhere <laughs> you know i got this thing okay that's the easy part now, the hard part is, what is it like to live in that world? What is that? What would that look like? What are the implications? What are the consequences? And that's why I think writing science fiction really is like engineering, because engineering is not about right and wrong. It's about trade-offs and consequences, which is the best JavaScript you know, framework. Best for what? Under what circumstances? What are the trade-offs? What are the consequences of it? You know, so that kind of line of thinking, I think, fits in very naturally with that sort of science fiction writing. It's like, okay, here's the setup. What are the consequences? How is society going to change because of that? How are our characters going to react because of that? What are their opportunities? What are their challenges? You know, how do I make that exciting? That sounds great. So I think that's a great place to end it. Get everybody excited about your book. So thank you so much for joining me, Andy. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, that was my talk with Andy. I sent him a couple questions about what we would talk about, and I'm not even sure that we got to them, but so much interesting stuff going on in that talk. I'm really interested by his idea of using a text editor as like kind of a, a simple wiki, and yeah, he was a fun guy to talk to. Also, no estimates. That's a movement I can get behind. All right, until next time, thank you for listening.